This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and today I am so excited to welcome Thomas Nicholson to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Over the last couple of years, Thomas Nicholson has become this recognizable face, this undeniable presence in locally shot film and television productions. Personally, I didn't truly realize the extent of Thomas's reach until I watched his demo reel and was like, I remember that performance. I remember that performance. Wait, that was him? From Project Blue Book to Supernatural, from Luvia Peterson's Dog Bite to Mega Hits Virgin River and The Haunting of Bly Manor, Thomas is stealing scenes and making himself known in our Vancouver screen scene. And in recent months, Thomas has made a massive impact in not one, but two beloved genre series. As Camaria operative Jack Orsati in Freeform's Motherland Fort Salem, whose producing director is friend of the podcast, Amanda Tapping, and as a little-known indie artist, David Bowie in DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Perhaps you've heard of him? David Bowie? Anyone? This is an exciting moment for Thomas, who, according to his bio, was born in Denmark, played football, real football, not what Americans call football, played bass in a post-grunge rock band, whatever that is, and studied investigative journalism before he ended up in the thick of our beloved YVR screen scene. What I find exciting about Thomas is the fact that, despite his distinctive look, he's also something of a chameleon. It's hard to believe that the same dude who plays David Bowie is also Jack Orsatti, that the conflicted Marine from Project Blue Book is also the drug addict who attacks Mel on Virgin River, and yet they are all the same guy. They're all Thomas Nicholson. So today, we're going to get to know the man behind this wildly eclectic and growing filmography. Thomas Nicholson. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you. Okay, so I told you first, um, you want to rebut anything in the thesis statement. This is your moment to do so. No, that's like, that's... That's what I would say about myself when I feel the most confident. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, no, I, I love, I take that as a huge compliment, the word chameleon. That that mm. to me is, um, that's kind of what I want from my work and my career to just keep expanding and exploring and, and widening my range. Yeah, now I described this particular moment in your career as an exciting one. But how would you describe this particular moment? You know, like what is this moment in your career for you? 
Oh, exciting is definitely one of the things it is. Um, I, th I feel like it's also the last, I don't know, year, year and a half maybe is, is when I'm sort of really building a confidence of of how I can shape my career mm. as a as opposed to just saying yes to every opportunity there's still a lot of that going on but yeah I feel like I'm I'm growing a bit in terms of yeah I guess I'm growing as an artist and my understanding of what kind of artist I am yeah okay so and we were we're going to get to all of it we're going to talk about the roles we're going to talk about the last year but before we do we're going to go back in time so I want to I want to go back to where your story starts. Uh, and I would love if you took us back to a moment in your childhood where you were Thomas Nicholson in your most purest, most distilled form. Wow, okay. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is so random, and I haven't thought about this in years. I grew So I grew up in Denmark in... Not a town, not a village, but like a hamlet, I guess. Like you know, kind of a chicken farm. I I don't know what the difference is between a village and a hamlet. Well, it's just like it's it's too small to be a village. There's just <laughs> a house between farms and houses. Yeah, so essentially kind of a chicken farm. And I don't know why this particular, it's a specific moment that comes up where I was. I had this bedroom with a balcony with this like wonderful view. And I remember standing there with a friend of mine when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. <laughs> and all we were doing was just yelling, just sort of exploring our the sound and this, I don't know, I guess there's so much freedom and just like, it wasn't sort of screaming um, in fear or anything like that. It was just yelling because we had the freedom to do that. Yeah, in your Hamlet, what were you yelling? Do you remember? Not words, just like, ah, but as loud as we possibly could. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I remember my dad coming running because he thought something was wrong. He was, <laughs> They're being murdered. Was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we sounded like we were terrified, <laughs> but we were just. Aren't Danish like like mysteries and murder murder thrillers and things? Like it's, that's a hallmark of, of at least what I know about Danish entertainment, you know? So, oh, yeah. So. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of weird that that's the moment I think of because Danish people and myself included are very reserved, kind of like a lot of Canadians can be. That's, yeah. Um, but I guess it's just an unreserved moment of just like yelling. A moment of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. So what did what did this yelling, f freedom craving Thomas want to be when he grew up? Oh, I I. I, I wanted to be a lot of things. I think I could tell from reading your bio as I did because yeah. there's a lot of. I, I mean, mean, I was a few things professionally, yeah. but I wanted to be. I think the first thing I thought when I was a kid, I thought that's what I want to be was like a professional Lego builder, like the person who builds the sets that are sold. I loved Legos and I loved creating. Legos are Danish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's could literally that was more more within grasp. You know, then yeah, than and there for was a lot like of us a friend up. of the family who worked for Lego as, had a different job, but it just sort of I guess it was the first unusual creative job that I knew was real. Yeah, and something like acting, I I didn't know it was real until I was in my mid twenties. Yeah, wow. It just didn't really. 
Okay, that's a spoiler. We're gonna yeah. put that aside yeah, for yeah. a second. We're, so, as far as your Lego building, like these are these are. I know you were a journalist at some point too. These are my investigative journalist questions. Yeah. <laughs> were you the kind of builder that you get a kit and you build according to the kit, or were you like like a free form like? I would always start with the kit. Yeah. And then I would go into free form. I remember like with my with my cousin, we would sort of collect all of our Legos and build these like gigantic mostly castles like medieval castles and just from yeah from fantasy ideas yeah get creative yeah um okay so i do i do have a question though about uh post-grunge rock bands um, mm. which I totally, I'm sorry I made fun of that in, in, as I read your bio but that showed up, I'm like I have no idea what that means you know, so tell me about music and also what is a post, what is post-grunge rock what does that sound like well to me it's like, I guess, you know, you have grunge like Soundgarden, Nirvana, that kind of thing and we're, we were younger than those bands and kind of mixed influences from that with more I guess more melodic rock yeah so it wasn't it wasn't kind of as well saying, saying Nirvana's not melodic well, like I'm I gonna guess. throw down with you because I was a, <laughs> I grew up in the 90s I was a teenager in the 90s softer <laughs> melodic let's call it not as not as angry not Are you the, saying no? I'm not going to fight with you. I actually don't have very strong feelings about this. But you know, I'm, I find it interesting though. You know, you talked about about you know being creative with the Lego, and I brought up the the music. You know, was was it was it always going to be the arts? Was it always you know like did your pair did your family have this kind of like like oh yeah that's going to be Thomas he's going to go like what what did they like what did they think of of the kind of kids you were and what direction you were you were going in. Well, I think I was, I had a lot of freedom. I was given a lot of freedom to just kind of explore and try this and that. And yeah. I was never, I was, ne I was never pushed into the arts, but I was never discouraged from it either. Yeah. And I played a lot of sports growing up as well and enjoyed that. But even at a young age, I knew I wasn't, you know, I'm pretty athletic, but I wasn't, it was football, soccer, and I knew I wasn't going to be a you professional. You have to say soccer. soccer here. Listen, I knew I wasn't going to be. A, I knew I wasn't going to. You be can a say football here. Football. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, that's what I would call it growing up. That's and what pretty much the entire world, except for North America. Yeah, yeah. Called yeah. football. Um, <laughs> okay, so so take me then to to you know I'm assuming that the education system is pretty similar between Canada and Denmark right like you get to the end of your teens and it's like okay post-secondary time this is a moment and I, frankly I think that we are too young when we're in our late teens to really for a lot of us decide what we want to be I didn't know what I wanted to be still don't know what I want to be no I'm doing it right now but until my mid-20s that was when it really things became kind of crystal clear for me you know but so you are standing on the precipice of your of your 20s and adulthood what are you saying in that moment what do you want to be when you grow up and like what steps are you taking yeah I mean I knew I knew already in high school that I was good at language and good at writing and and I, I couldn't quite put that put it into words but I knew I wanted to be a storyteller mm. and the most obvious route seemed to be journalism at the time yeah and so I, I knew early on I wanted a degree in journalism and I really enjoyed getting my degree too yeah and I 
I have no regrets for getting that and it helps me now as well but yeah I don't I don't know I um I felt pretty certain I wanted to be a journalist at the time and like yeah. whatever I was I was probably I did high school and then I did kind of a hiatus year where I was uh, an assistant kindergarten teacher. Whoa, whoa, hold which... on, hold on. <laughs> How do you end up doing that just after high school? And like that almost like the idea of just going in and wrangling little kids, you know, like tell me about like what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like going to the army. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though I took a break and kind of knew I wanted to do journalism. I was yeah. just like, I just need a break from from kind of school system because I've been doing it for what, what, like 14, 15 years at the yeah. time. And, and I just wanted a break. It wasn't sort of a figure out what I want to do. It was just, I just want to do something else for a little bit. And one of the, one of the options I had as someone without a real degree yet was to help out at a kindergarten. And... <sighs> I loved it. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, you know, like... What did you learn doing that? What did you learn about, like, about people and about kids, you know? Like, I can imagine that, you know, yes, you're there to make sure, like, kids don't injure themselves or don't stick stuff up their nose or, like, whatever. All the stuff that happens when kids are four and five years old, right? But, like, I could also imagine that there's an education for you in that you know because like you're watching people at their most like as they kind of walk that line between being like you know instinct driven animalistic little babies you know and then you know human beings adult humans like with their their personalities starting to show like because like when you're that little you know you're not a toddler anymore but you're not a big kid yet either mm -hmm. it's it's such a, a tumultuous age yeah, and I mean, I was kind of a big kid myself. Yeah. I mean, I guess I still am. Oh, you're but, one of those teachers, eh? Who are just like, oh, I'm going to get in the floor and just be with the kids. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like, climb I, on I remember my stuff. first day, one of the big boys was like, hey, do you want to go in the, like, pillow fighting room and have a pillow fight? And I just kind of struggled. Like, yeah, sure, that sounds like fun. And he was so excited because the grown-ups didn't usually do that, I guess. <laughs> Wait, this was a kindergarten with a pillow fighting room? Oh, yeah, there was a room set aside for pillow fighting. That's, Wow. Denmark is really different. <laughs> it's, that is just um, amazing. Um, I, so I know, I mean, you had a, how long were you in the journalist journalism world then? I was doing, so the degree, I, the specific, there are kind of a couple of different ways to get the degree in Denmark, but the one I got was a four-year one, yeah. including a year and a half of working. Wow. Okay, was so awesome. What kind of a journalist were you and like what stories interested you? I liked, I really enjoyed finding stories that were, you know, print worthy and newsworthy about the, I kind of made it a sport almost of finding stories about people that are overseen. And it doesn't have to be a sort of, hmm. you know, the homeless guy that no one looks at. It didn't have to be like that, but just, I guess that idea of everyone has an interesting story if you figure out what it is kind of thing. I, I really you enjoyed doing that. You are speaking my language. I I love that. So what, can you give me some examples then of some of the people that you that you spoke to, the people whose stories have kind of like latched themselves into you, you know, for all these years? Yeah, I remember this one story I was really proud of that wasn't, you know, didn't make sort of big waves or anything like that. But one of the places I worked for a while was this local newspaper in a quite a rural area. Now, was it at, uh, still a hamlet, or are we now in a village? Uh, this would be... I lived in a Danish standards city, but 
here it would be a town, like 50,000 maybe. Oh, okay. But um, Way bigger than a hamlet then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way more people to talk yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but I, I found out that the, the like, region I lived in had the fewest foreign citizens of any region in Denmark, and I just found that curious. So I found... I found a family from, I think they were from, um, they were from the Middle East. I forget the country. Yeah. And, and just kind of, I don't know, just kind of went out and spent a day with them just talking about if they felt welcome, if it was weird and learning the language and different skin color and all these things in it and just a very very white country and in a very white part of a white country yeah um, and it wasn't you know it wasn't a it wasn't a story about racism it wasn't it was just a story about learning to sort of be yourself and fit in and yeah i just love those little stories yeah little uh, a little story but that can give that can breed empathy right and give yeah. you know give Hopefully, people some yeah. insight into the, what's going on in other people's lives you kind of alluded to this before and uh i i want to and i put a pin in it and i'm removing the pin how did your time in journalism inform the work that you do now as an actor well i've just i've developed very strong research skills and yeah. i enjoy the research as well and just in terms of like really practical stuff like if I have an audition I'll always look up all the people who they are what they've worked on yeah like that independent artist uh, who some people might have heard of called David Bowie a little bit of research such as him yeah that was that was a lot of research (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah Um, so things like that and one of my favorite things about journalism was also it's it's an excuse to ask supposedly dumb questions I feel called out and and seen at the same <laughs> at the same time there. Yeah, I mean you're you get you get to be curious, you know, and yeah, and to be like and be like, wow, like how does that work? Why does that work that way? You know, when did that start working that way? You know, and people are like, wow, you're just just chill. Now we are going to try to build a bridge between journalism and acting. And I think maybe the first the first step of that, and I'm going to make some big assumption here, <laughs> but was there something in journalism that was leaving you unfulfilled? Or like, what, what were some of the things that you didn't like about working in that sphere? I, yeah, I, um, my last kind of permanent job was in, I lived in the UK, in London for a couple of years. And it wasn't actually a journalism job. I used my journalism degree to get the job, but I worked for a, an online gambling company. And it was just a soul-sucking job. Like, I just, yep. I mean, that's that's a total aside from journalism. But in terms of communication, I use some of those yep. skills. Hey, a lot, I mean, journalism is bleeding out as well, right? Like, even right now during the pandemic, like, the, new, the newspaper I used to work for in town, like, they had to close because of the, of the pandemic, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I said pandemic so many times. If this was my editor, she would have been cutting all those. But that all that is to say that a lot of people who worked in journalism are now moving into, you know, um, public relations or advertising, you know, or, you know, the communication departments of companies like online gambling and stuff. You know, people need our words. But uh, if that's not what has 
motivated you to go into journalism in in the first place to tell you know the stories of the you know the immigrants in the in the Danish countryside right like that's that can be very soul sucking yeah exactly and that's I mean my insight in that industry is just it's it's soul it is solely about making money and, and there's a and I mean with online gambling, internet gambling, um, none of whom sponsor the podcast, and I don't think they ever will. Uh, but you know, it's it is it it. There's a lot of victims in that. You know? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so build me that bridge, then get us to Vancouver. Yeah. So that my. Um, my partner and I were kind of in, she had a, I met her in journalism, but she had a different job there. And for kind of similar reasons, we, um, we just decided this is not, this is not what we want to do for the rest of our working lives. So we quit our jobs at the same time when traveling. She's a screenwriter now. And at the time she was applying to different screenwriting schools, just kind of getting an interest for that. And yeah. She was accepted at VFS here in town, Vancouver Film School, and it was just kind of a, it was a great opportunity to just go somewhere new, a new city we'd never been to, and just kind of start from scratch. And yeah. within that journey of starting from scratch, she actually gave me acting lessons as a kind of a moving in present. And then... Wow. Yeah. That like I, I did one of those like what? People can't see. We are not an audio visual <laughs> podcast. But I was like, whoa, that's amazing. So she okay, so we have to thank her then for Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am I am indebted. <laughs> but had you had any like how, did she know? Did she was she like, Oh, this is this is totally like Thomas could totally be an actor if he just like, you know, had a lesson or something. Like was this something that you'd spoken about before? Like, I'm just curious about, like, going out and getting acting lessons. And also, I would love to hear where you had your acting lessons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, she definitely knew before I did because... And that's why she's a good partner. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, you know, she definitely knows things about me that I don't know. Yeah. Um, Hopefully vice versa. Um, But, yeah, I had done, like, bits of acting here and there growing up. And I'd always enjoyed it. But, again, it was that idea of... I didn't know anyone who was a professional actor growing up, so it didn't it didn't occur to me that that could be a career or a yeah. vocation, anything else than a hobby. And she was doing some kind of she's not an actor, but she did some kind of almost like a dilettante with some friends where it was just about kind of getting drunk and have a fun time. And I was running lines with her. And she told me afterwards that I just got really animated and into it and obviously was like in love with it wow. i didn't i didn't even i didn't i don't even remember this i didn't even clock that but so take yeah. me into class then you go to class where are we in class by the way so my first acting class in vancouver was with uh karen da silva karen da, karen da silva yeah okay and so tell you go to that class yeah and what did you find there well i had like a i had a big aha moment in my first acting class where I can't remember. It was a scene study class where you get a play, the scene from a play you work on with a scene partner. Yeah. I forget what the play was called, but I played a guy who was really angry because his girlfriend has been out all night and was supposed to be home for dinner or whatever, and she comes home in the middle of the night, and I'm angry that she didn't call or text or anything like that. Yeah. 
and I'm probably in the scene and raising my voice and telling her off whatever the lines are and and Karin said why are you pretending to be angry and I said well I'm pretending to be angry because this is and this and this and then she said okay well then be angry and just like oh I just had this realization I have all this freedom to just be all these things and do all these things and not it's not a you had the it's chance. not about pretending. Yeah, it's, it's something not else. about pretending. It's about literally standing at the window and shouting out, you know, into the hamlet and yeah. feeling that freedom. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wow. So was there a moment then? Was it in that class? Was it, you know, shortly thereafter? Like, was there was there a moment where you're like, I'm going to I'm gonna pursue acting for it, my career and really try to make a go of it? I mean, that was a moment. I'm assuming that uh, that moment came. <laughs> it did. No, it did because I, that was probably a moment where I reconnected with something that I already knew about it myself and acting that I really wanted to do it. And I always distinguish between having a dream and having an ambition because mm. I also dream of like playing rock concerts at sellout stadiums, but it's not an ambition. Yeah. Um, so it, I sort of rekindled that dream, and then I was. Um, when it sort of really shifted for me was my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Oh. I think I think about a year after that, which was obviously devastating. Yeah. But I was so I was so inspired by both my parents, how they just kind of insisted on having a great time while they still could and mm. like went traveling so much and kind of fast forwarded their retirement plans and just yeah. like had like really a great few years while they still could and yeah. I it was it was kind of a spurred something on in me and just like whatever I might be afraid of of failure or whatever just yeah forget about it like if not now then when yeah and and yeah. It, I almost felt like I would kind of be pissing on her if I didn't, if I was too afraid to do this thing and maybe embarrassing myself. Yeah. Who cares? That That is incredible. So you begin your career, you step into this career then. What did you want then? And how is that different from what you want now? Mm. Well, I think it was less specific when I started. It was more this idea of I want to do this for a living. Yeah. And I want to be a professional working actor, which is very sort of generic. Mm. I mean, I still want that now, but it, yeah. it's getting more and more specific. And I'm also daring to be more ambitious with, with just calling it what it is and... and allow myself to want I want to be the number one on the call sheet on the best shows that's why not work towards that it's yeah. the only way to it's the only way to find out if I can actually do that is to go for it yeah so it it's gradually changing in that sense and then on the side of that you also realize every now and again you get to be a part of stories that are like bigger than the entertainment value which is not everything is that not everything should be that i don't think but i love being part of something that feels like we have a responsibility to do this right yeah and we will talk about motherland fort salem um and we will talk about david bowie and a dc's legend of tomorrow but from what you've just said uh, that made me think of a short film 
that you sent me the link to that is currently doing the festival circuit right now, and it's called The Day We Left. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a historical escape drama that depicts the a family's true story as refugees. It's set in 1992 uh, during the religious conflict of the Bosnian War, where a family, a real family, the Hodzik family, um, they leave their village behind and they seek refuge in the land of their enemy. Uh, and you play, uh, you play the the husband, because uh, Nora is the is the the wife, and we see mm-hmm. a lot of this from from her point of view. Yeah, um, this is the kind of film that packs a lot into its short running time, uh, and it is one of the like. And I love a short film that is a short film for a short, for a short film's sake you know it's it's a celebration of the genre where you can mm-hmm. actually really it's not just like oh this is a proof of concept for a larger film which and those have their value as well but this one felt like just a delectable you know it's perfect in its in its size and its scope um, but I watching it though I had this moment where I was like I knew about this conflict and I knew about this war and the trail of bodies that was left in its wake but there's something something that you can get from watching a short film you know and watching something a story told on screen in this way that you can't get from you know a write-up you know in a in a history book or or an article you know and I'm, I'm having a challenging time trying to to find the words to describe what that is like what do you think it is that we get from from see seeing you know this kind of story, you know, of, of a family who, incidentally, a real family, hmm. you know, uh, who we get to know later in the credits as we see photos of them after, and they ended up f- fleeing and, and they were refugees. Um, you know, so what do we get from, from watching, you know, a story like that in a short film as opposed to just reading, you know, a write-up well, in, in an encyclopedia? Do they even make encyclopedias anymore? <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway. But you see what I'm saying? Like it's no. I think I think I know exactly. I don't know if I'll be able to explain it, but I think I know exactly what you mean. Because the two was, of us were like, we don't have words for this, but you know, well, <laughs> like, that was my journey to in terms of. I guess it goes back to uh, strong research skills because I start reading all these articles and reminding yeah. myself of like, you know, the facts of it and the. I guess it's. I guess that's what it is. Often when you do the, read the stories, you read. It's so hard to take in all these facts and so many thousands and so many, you know, it's it's that thing where the tragedy becomes a statistic. Yeah. And when we make a short film and just zoom in on one family, you hopefully you understand a bit more of the tragedy. And also, for me, it was also that realization of, you know, the man I'm playing is, is Muslim, which is why there's this genocide, because yeah. they're Muslim. And... I'm not a Muslim. I didn't grow up in a Muslim country, but just kind of realizing, I mean, I have so much in common with this man. Hmm. And that's, I, I guess it's, that's what kind of got under my skin. Like, I really fell in love with this family. I just, like, want to work on their farm and take care of their family. And that's that's all they want. And yeah. they're not allowed to do that. Yeah, I mean, th- there are some moments in the film where... Um 
I won't give spoilers, although it's it's hard it's hard with a film like this because <laughs> it's twelve minutes yeah. long. Um, but you know, there there is a very dramatic moment where you know the like because the 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 wife she is pregnant and you know they are trying to cross the border and you know like th- things could go south very very quickly. Oh yeah. You know, and we are brought into the. Oh, and I think she ends up in labor or something, or she's having some. I don't know what's going on with her, but she's like she's having some. Yeah, I forget what it's called. It's like a pains. fake labor. Braxton Hicks. Yes. Yes, Thank where you. it feels <laughs> it feels like you are actually in labor, you know. And so we're brought like there's something about being brought into that moment and the immediacy, like the it feels very immediate, you know the the terror and what's at stake, you know, and I was like, wow, I'm getting so much just from being brought into their lives, you know, more so than if I'm just reading, you know, an article with, with, you know, with the statistics or we've been discovering in a lot of the coverage of COVID, you know, where it's like, yes, millions have died and hundreds of thousands have, you know, had this experience or that, but the numbers, it's like, you can't even compute what that means. And yet being brought into a single family's journey you know can really Uh can kind of you know stick inside of you and i i just i'm curious about the fact though like this is a true story you're playing a real person who actually existed you know how did the fact that this is based on a real person influence your performance well i mean the before we sort of agreed that i was the actor for the part I also had a conversation with the director because there's also the question of representation. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not from that area, I'm non-Muslim, and I want to make sure that I am the right fit. And in this case, Elma, who plays Nora, is from there mm. and did escape with her family, kind of, sort of a similar story. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she she would have been like a young, like four or five maybe at the time. but. <sighs> But, you know, she was um, she was brought on as also a producer as well as the actor to mm-hmm. sort of make sure the film represents the story it's telling. Yeah, that there and, is that uh, authenticity. Yeah, exactly. And and, um, and I was her pick as well, which is always nice. But in this particular case, it was kind of crucial to me that it, it, it I felt good about being part of it. And then yeah. the family, too, really... Uh, liked what we did with the film so that's our like we've oh, already won in good. that case in that sense that must have been nerve-wracking oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah definitely <laughs> and apparently i look a lot like the well she, you see the pictures you did you yeah. see the pictures at the end yeah. i think like that's a crucial part of it yeah. too you know is that you do you so do there's, look a yeah, lot like i mean it goes back to that sense of responsibility but i really like that i like you know it, there are so many stakes in the film but there are also so many stakes for me because yeah just we got to I mean, I don't know about get it right. That's that's uh, that can sort of suck out creativity of thinking yeah. that way, but definitely just do it justice. Yeah, um, I mean, you did come to Vancouver as an immigrant. Um, what was your, you know, and so you came also. You didn't grow up here. You are an, you were you kind of came in from doing this like parachuting kind of in here. Um, what was your first impression of our local industry? You know, and like, how did how did the Vancouver uh, film and television industry, you know, treat you when you arrived and began to work your way in? Well, my experience has been very positive. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I don't, 
I think I guess it takes a little while to find your people. Mm. But it's not. I don't know. On one hand, it can be a very lonely city. I think. Yeah. But on the other hand, one of the great things about being in various acting classes is there is this sort of mini mini community within the larger community. Yeah. And I think that community, it just naturally changes as you as you progress in your career because it's sort of different people you're around. But I. I certainly never felt unwelcome in any of those kind of groups. Yeah. Did you face any challenges as as someone who was not born in Canada, you know, or who who is an immigrant from Europe? Um well, I guess the the biggest challenge was was my own and that was like before I ever stepped in front of a casting director, a, like a professional casting director, I wanted to get rid of my accent. <gasps> not that I can't do my <laughs> accent, but I was just like I don't want to be the guy with the funny accent. I want to be the guy who can do the accents. Mm. And I want them to just think of me as North American because that's going to be 90% of my work. Right. So what did you do then in, in, in order to do that? Well, I've always had a good ear. Like, long before I thought about acting, I've always had a good ear for accents. I grew up bilingual. I'm sure that helped. And I kind of grew up with two different accents because I had my dad's English accent. Right. But then also subconsciously wanting to fit in in school when we had English lessons I would kind of do a Danish accent so you were doing accents yeah, without like really code switching being yeah. conscious of it I totally was yeah I, I, I'd like to apologize for my reaction when you're like I had to get rid of my accent because um, this reminds me of uh, conversations I had I think it was three years ago now with Andrea Stavanchikova and Almiro, you know, who mm-hmm. who were really wanting to draw attention to uh, the idea that that people should not have to I agree with strip that. themselves of their of their accents, you know, because North America sounds like we are I mean, you live here. Yeah. <laughs> you live here. People have all kinds of accents here, you know, and yet the image that that especially in the American service productions, you know, that we broadcast to the world, you know, are this this idea like everybody sounds the same. And, you know, it's it's it presents this idea of uh, a North America that doesn't actually really quite exist, you know. So like there was a part of me that was like remembering those conversations and they became very emotional at times, you know, when. Where where they were like we don't get to be fully who who we are because we have to you know strip away you know this aspect of ourselves uh, which is our accents and we're st- we can, you can we're still understandable and we're still speaking English and most importantly we live here too people yeah. with accents <laughs> live here too you know so I don't know like what did you think of that conversation you know when it was because it, I mean they ended up with a ton of publicity you know all yeah like no across, I remember that yeah all across North America people were talking about this and it really no, started I, here in Vancouver I mean I definitely agree with that and I also you know like I I happened to have this ear for it and yeah. it's something that wasn't impossible for me so yeah. I, I have that huge advantage and and I love doing other accents yeah. for, you know we just talked about the day we left where I had to learn a Bosnian accent yeah. and, um, so for me it's I didn't sort of suffer the trauma of having to change it was more it was more a, an exciting challenge yeah, I gave myself yeah because you're the chameleon well I, there I you certainly go. try to be right <laughs> yeah and, and that's such a 
that's such a great part of it. And I find different accents really inform me about the character too. Yeah. So in your time in Vancouver then, uh, what have been the memorable roles, you know, when you're like, or like moments from your career here where you've been like, fuck yeah. I am, this is a moment when I am like, I'm leveling up or, mm -hmm. or not even leveling up or I feel like I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Well, my first experience like that was actually not in Vancouver, but I got the job in on, from a self tape. It was for Damnation. Damnation! Yeah, it was shot in Calgary. Yeah. And it was such a... The timing, 2017, 2018. The timing <laughs> of that was incredible because yeah. I remember I was at like this, like some, this gathering with some friends of friends and someone asked that question of bef before I, I had taped for a damnation and then forgotten about it yeah. and someone did the thing where they asked so how long are you going to give it which sort of implies you're going to fail eventually so when do you when do you stop when do you give up and uh, I'm sorry was this person in the film and television no, industry no of course not <laughs> Clearly, uh, I mean they mean well. They do. No, no, of course I know they do. It's just, but uh, it that is a that that is a soul sucking kind of question. Yeah, too. it's just one of those like, yeah, I can't even remember what I answered, but tried to explain that it's not really a question about that. But um, I just had that, and I felt a little bit sorry for myself, and then came back home and had an email from my agent saying, "Hey, they want you for damnation." Yes. So I was like, okay, <laughs> can come back to you later with an answer for how long I'll give it. That is um, the universe providing. Yeah, for sure. so that was that was um, that was my first experience of of that like big like this is yes, and it's like this role is so big that if I screw it up, the episode sucks. Yeah, which is you know you can flip that to an exciting thing. That's again the responsibility of like better do my homework and get ready for this. And yeah, what about here in Vancouver then? Well, that's mostly. I mean, it's 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 grown a lot. It's been weird. The pandemic's been weird for me in terms of the sort of material career success. It's really started to happen right because during the pandemic, season two of Motherland that was during the pandemic. Yeah, you worked on which I didn't mention, and I wish I'd written down the name, but the Ben Ratner uh, series. Yeah, that, yeah, trigger that, me. Yeah, yeah, that that lo looks so freaking cool. You yeah, know, I that's, think it's going to be that's great. That's about like three like you know young people dealing with with uh, you know woes during the pandemic and there's like an online therapist that is like helping them through it sounds amazing and i'm assuming legends of tomorrow as well has been during the yeah. pandemic yeah yeah my my debut on that show was that show's first day back after the pandemic okay that, that must was, have been weird it was really weird yeah. but it was it was a good weird because everyone was happy just to be at work yeah cast and crew everyone okay well then let's talk about that then um Okay, I actually, I, I didn't, I forgot that I had this, but if you turn around, do you see I have a Barbie doll that is, is David Bowie, like Barbie oh. as David Bowie? Like, and I actually, I saw David Bowie in concert here in Vancouver, oh, amazing. you know, which was, which was dope. Like, and yet I look back on, you know, like every decade, you know, there has, there have been these like, icon there were these iconic David Bowie moments, right? So what I'm assuming, I'm assuming, especially coming from, you know, a, a household where one of your parents is English, you know, that 
that David Bowie, you know, had that you knew who he was, you know, before you were cast. So tell me about your personal connection to the Thin White Duke, you know, before DC's Legends of Tomorrow. I love that you bring up his most racist character. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he contained multitudes. We can call him There's Ziggy as well. There's a connection to Jack Rosati. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I always loved David. Oh, talk of chameleons. Like, he's the ultimate chameleon. Yeah. Um, and an actor, too. Um, yeah, I've Labyrinth. Always... I still have nightmares about his work in that. Oh. Yeah. And also, <laughs> what was that show called? Extras. Oh, where he's he, so sing, great. he sings that song called "A uh, Little Fat Man," What's and he sings like? it to Little Fat Sad Man, little fat man who whatever, sold yeah. his soul. Yeah. <laughs> sings it to Ricky Gervais. Anyway, that's amazing. Um, yes. Sorry. Oh so yeah, li- lifelong fan. <laughs> like I think. I want to say most people are, but of course that's not true, but a lot of people are. Um, I'm an icon. So when you auditioned then, did you know that it was for David Bowie or were they like, oh, it's an English rocker, you know, like? No, I did did know it was for David Bowie, but it's always one of those, you know, when, when we audition, we usually have around 24 hours from getting the sides and the information to having to send a tape so it's it's a very quick turnaround yeah yeah it's sort of a lot of weird discoveries where the good thing about everything being compressed in such a short period of time you don't really have time to second guess too much is it like why would they ask me to uh, tape for david bowie all those things you just kind of got to get on with it and do it yeah um so how did you prepare then? Or like, did you listen to mu- David Bowie music like beforehand? Did you like, you know, did you conjure him in your mind and then, you know, try tr- do like, and like try to channel him? Like it must be, like I can imagine that that's, it would be challenging to inhabit a character, a real life character like David Bowie, you know, without making it seem like it's a, like an impersonation impersonation yeah, or a caricature, yeah, right? It, yeah, it definitely is. And I was, it's funny, I, um, well, I started with all the kind of, in this case, I started with all the technical stuff, with the accent and the, I mean, I had to <laughs> learn a song as well for my Yeah, audition. you did. Um, That's great. Um, like accent and, and little mannerisms. And then uh, a coach in town, Shane Savage, helped me a lot because w- my big problem was, you know, it's, in Legends, it's like a celebration of David Bowie. It's not the gritty biopic, and, yeah. and it's not a. It's a fun scene. It's not a high stakes scene. Yeah. But I needed some kind of goal in the scene to not just do a mimicry. Yeah. And he really helped me by just saying, "Well, you want to write the best song you can, and then you're plucking little ideas from these people here." Yeah. And that that kind of that really that really opened it up for me and and allowed me to also like be playful in it and. You know, it's Legends of Tomorrow. He's probably the spacey version of David Bowie. Yeah. yeah. What was the name of the episode too? It, it was like based on a on a song, right? Um, Ground Control to Sarah Lance. There you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. So the experience of like moving like him and speaking like him and performing like him, like ha- has this changed how you s- perceive him now? Do you feel a in some ways, you know, him? you know, actually, because one of the other things I did in terms of research, I was just like, I just want to find out, like, because I can't, I'm, I don't feel like an icon. I can't do that. That's not my way in. But yeah. I, I found like little things we have in common that are not important. We're both left-handed. 
We oh. uh, love cats. Uh, oh, he loves cats. Yeah, like things like you that. You love cats? Are, oh, yeah. Whoa, let's talk about cats. Okay. Do you have cats? We're not allowed pets in our building. Boo. So, no. Have you had cats? Yes. And what kind of cats and what were their names? Uh, the first cat came with the farm. Okay. And was called Kisser. Kisser? Which is, doesn't really translate. It sounds like something else in English. But, yeah. And then we had uh, <laughs> Fritz and Frel. Fritz and Frel. <laughs> Very good. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was it growing up. And Were they outdoor cats? Yeah, yeah. They so were. they would, would they like catch rodents and present them to you as like trophies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love, I mean, my cats are indoor only and they're like such pampered little bastards, uh, you know, but at my grandparents' farm, they we had like, we had all like out like barn cats, you know, yeah, and like yeah, I, I, I would always yeah. be, feel like honored when they would bring like a... I mean, it was disgusting, like a, like a, a dead mouse or, or a bird. Yeah. You're like, uh, but they would like present it, like, look what I caught for you. Yeah. It's like, thank you, me. Yeah, cats are great. Yeah. They're such personalities. And David Bowie's cat person. I did not yeah. know that. No, I, that's, that was one of the things I didn't know in advance, but it just helped me to like make him human. Yeah. I'm not convinced he was. Nah, no, still <laughs> not. But I had to, I had to find a way. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to move on to Jack. Um, and I'm going to speak directly to listeners who who haven't watched Freeform's Motherland Fort Salem yet. And you really should. Uh, it takes place in an alternate reality where the witches from Salem weren't burned at the stake, but were instead entered into a peace accord with America to lead the military arm of the government. Season one aired in 2020, and it introduced us to the lives of young witches who are constructed ripped it into the army, whether they like it or not. And there is one who really doesn't like it, played by Taylor Hickson. Um, we also meet the adversaries that they face, one being a group of terrorist witches called the Spree, and the other, a group of witch-hating humans called the Camarilla. Season two has brought both of these adversaries to the fore, and it saw our heroes under fire from the Camarilla. Um, season two features incredible performances from some Vancouver actors, including Catherine LaHyquist, Victor Webster as the vice president, Juan Riddinger, who incidentally, I've had Juan on the podcast. I've interviewed him so many times in the years. He's a friend. I've known him for a long time. I didn't realize that that was him. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was like, who's this dirtbag, like, husband <laughs> yeah, he's dude? A creep. I'm like, he's such, I'm like, that's Juan? Oh, my God. Anyway, Juan, Josh Blacker, um, our beloved Pranit Akila, and, and Thomas as Jack Orsati, a Camarilla operative who is up to no good. So far, seven episodes have aired, and they have been gorgeous and devastating and emotionally churning. And as previously mentioned, Amanda Tapping, producing director on the show. So, I know you know you knew all of that, Thomas. Um, what I love about Motherland Fort Salem is all the shades of gray. Uh, I like I I know that like. The protagonists, you know, are they're all the the people who are in the army, the witches in the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't always agree with what they're doing. You know, even General Alder, she hero, she villain. So Camaria, I know they're supposed to be very, very bad guys, and they do very despicable things. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to say exactly what they do, but super despicable. But first of all, where do your sympathies lie? Not as Jack but as Thomas. Because I actually see, like, personally, 
I see all the reasons why, you know, pe people believe what they believe, you know? Yeah. Like I think of somebody like as as a mother to a daughter, and if she ended up, if Mari ended up manifesting, you know, witch, witchy witch, you know, I'm gonna say symptoms, powers, uh, then and I don't think I'd be really happy about her being conscripted into the army. I might be at a protest saying not our daughters. Yet I also know what the army is there and all the good that they're doing, but I also understand the spree as vile as they are. While they m might be like, fuck this like conscription bullshit for yeah. witches, you know? Like we should be focusing on our own shit and not serving, you know, people who don't who don't like us. So it's like it's one of these shows where I feel like conflicted all times, you know? So where do your sympathies lie? Yeah, I mean, wow, that's a that's a good question for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, you even have like <laughs> Amalia who plays Scylla, who opens the series with killing thousands of innocent people in a mall, and yeah. yet the mall we, being the Vancouver Public Libraries for yeah. you, which is but beautiful. We kind of develop a sympathy for her. Yeah, and, and I never thought I would. No, I'm like, she's there to do harm, and she's going to take Ray out. Well, that's <laughs> like you could, in, if you want to do a body count, I think she's worse than Jack Rosati, yeah. even though. She probably would get more sympathy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it, they shift too because we do get to understand a lot of like the bad decision making. I think it might have been Pranit. I'm just pointing at a at a mug with Pranit on it. Um, yeah, there's a whole backstory to why I have a. <laughs> it's not a mug. It's a coin bank. I'll oh, tell you the backstory. Oh, I'll tell you the backstory, and I just remembered another guest star. So Marcy T. House, who plays the Imperatrix <laughs> on Motherland Fort Salem, she came in here, and um, she's worked with Pranit m numerous times. You know. In both on Motherland, but I believe also on stage, or she knows him from this from the stage world. And um, we were talking, like we were talking about how um, how Pr Pranit is like blowing up, right? Like he's mm -hmm. Gil Bobsy on uh, Nancy Drew, um, and you know, and then he's also on uh, Motherland Fort Salem, and he's not, he's you know he's got his finger in a whole bunch of different things. And um, she says that like that he's her pretty penny because he's so like he's so pretty you yeah. know and he's such a good actor um and so i was like wouldn't it be funny if i put his face on a coin bank that you oh. can keep your pennies in <laughs> and uh she was like that would be amazing so i made two one for uh one for marcy and then one for myself and um and then she tweeted out um when she received it uh, she tweeted it out, you oh, know, to great. like to uh, embarrass <laughs> in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody like oh, um, that's awesome. Pranit. But I, what were we talking about? What were well, we talking I, about? I, I think it was him that um, we were talking about Motherland yeah. and about one thing that's really cool about it. Like, you had the whole Me Too movement, and the and then you started getting all these films where, like, basically uh, women can kick ass too, kind of thing. Yeah. But what I really love, and you know, like Wonder Woman, for example, and Wonder Woman was great, but it's also her like moral compass is never in question. Yeah. And I love that about Motherland that you have all these great female characters. Some of them are heroes, some of them not so much. They're but more even Batmans the, than Wonder Women. Exactly. Well, even yeah. even the absolute <laughs> heroes on the show are like doing some things that are like, ah, that's like, do you really want to go down that route? Yeah, like, it's not about protecting really cool. the innocent. Like for for one of the characters in particular, it's about vengeance. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say which one, but it's really good. <laughs> But I, Can you I tell I watched all seven episodes in the last couple of <laughs> yeah. days? Like everything is so fresh in my mind. I, think I can't you know wait. Better than me, certainly. I, yeah. I cannot <laughs> wait, you know, for the for the next few episodes. So okay, so for like we have not 
Um, we didn't get a chance to get to know the Camarilla well at all in season one. They were spoken about as some ancient enemy, and they mm-hmm. only really, you know, reassert themselves in season two. Uh, and they are they're humans who are like really like you know like fuck this. I appreciate having you on sworn. I swear a lot on my podcast. Yeah. You're loud. You're totally out. But like, fuck this. Like, we don't want her daughters to be conscripted. And then they kind of go a little bit too far. But um, how important is it for you to empathize or sympathize with a character like Jack in order to play him? Oh, very. Because otherwise, for me, it's very important. Because I yeah. know if I if I can't find a way to do it, I'm gonna be kind of twirly mustache. And yeah, I, that's that doesn't really interest me. Yeah. So with a character like Jack, then, and knowing you know, one, the fact that you're from Europe, two, the fact that you are you know clearly a student of history and you love research and stuff, did you look to any? Um, real world examples you know of of um you know i i don't i, I mean you even when we, we talked about you know thin white duke and whatever and you're yeah. like oh there's your jack rosati <laughs> like was there anything like did you look to anything in in our world in our reality you know to inform your performance of jack mm. or to try to understand what the camarilla is all about well, when I've explained it to friends who know nothing about the show, I kind of liken the Camarilla to the KKK and the witches to black people. Mm-hmm. It's almost that kind of deep-rooted, ancient hatred of yeah. other. But I think in terms of my own, I just kind of built a backstory for him that his family was killed by witches. Yeah. And that's kind of a way in, so it's it's always personal, and it's it's just... It's just rotted in him, so he can't look beyond yeah. that. Um, what were some of your favorite uh, Jack moments and scenes? Because I got to tell you, my favorite was when uh, Jack got his ass handed to him by Anacostia. Which and time? She's, yeah, no kidding. But she's wearing <laughs> no. She's got. She's in this like pantsuit. She's got heels on. Um, that was my favorite. Like just to just to watch your ass get handed to you was just so delightful for me. <laughs> so sorry, Thomas. <laughs> no, that was so much fun. And and Demetria, who plays Anacostia, is just phenomenal and had been itching for a fight because in the whole first season you just see her this tough general, but oh, yeah. you don't. I really thought you see... were gonna say she was itching to kick my ass. Oh yeah, that too. That too. No, but but she just like wanted part of the action because yeah. she. She's obviously created as this character that you know has it in her, but we don't get to see it until season two. That's so. right, because she's kind of in a teaching position for mm-hmm. for the the younger witches who come into her charge. Yeah. Um, okay. That was that was my favorite moment too. That was sure. yours. Yeah, hands down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a limp offset. That was so good. Thank you, Demetria. Okay, let's speak to those people that you were talking to who hadn't watched the show, and to anybody else who's listening who has not watched the show. Why should they watch this show? I'd go back to the, um, I think it's cool that you have all these, like a really diverse cast with a lot of women, men, um, racially diverse, and also that thing of, it's not just women being cool and kick-ass and tough and doing all the right things. It's also yeah. women, you know, you can, there's, there's enough of it that you can also question that whole thing of... Uh, well, it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. With great power comes great responsibility. And 
They don't I'm always because that has come good. up in a couple of episodes. Uh, but recently. it's I think that's but it's, I, I love that. Yeah. I love seeing that, and yeah. I love seeing the. I love seeing people making wrong decisions and understanding why they made that wrong decision. Mm. That, that's just so human. Yeah, or witchy, as the case may or be. Or witchy, yes. What is a Thomas Nicholson role? Oh. Oh, I should have known you'd ask me this. Um, <laughs> you have listened to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like, when are you, what needs to be present in a role to get you all all excited? Well, okay. So I found like the ones I really get excited about. I found like there are sort of two strands of them, and it shows up in my body of work. I've been lucky enough that it shows up in my body of work as well. Because there's the one role where it's it's exciting because there's like this emotional depth and background to the story and you really want to dig into i don't know grief for example i find grief very fascinating and just like mm. and we all have our own griefs and deal with grief in different ways so that's often like a flavor of one and then a very different one is I'm phrasing this, this is David Bowie phrased this, this is one thing I learned we had in common, this is how I realized that this is a, a Thomas Nicholson role. I am very fascinated by the things that I, that I, I'll try that again. I'm very fascinated by that which repulses me. Hmm. So people who do really despicable things and then, I don't know, there's something really interesting in you know, if I if I have to play them, I have to get beyond I would never do that and have to figure out, well, what would make me do that anyway, mm. even though I would never do it. I find that so, it's just like from therapy. my own like little selfish yeah. bubble of what's interesting and digging into about myself, I think that's really fascinating. I think it kind of comes back to searching for stories as well that we were talking about when we were talking about journalism. Yeah. Right. I guess you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a it's, a, it's an element of that thing yeah. that I don't get it. I don't understand why people do that. And then here's, and a, then here's a challenge to learn how to understand that. So does that change then how you interact with morally or ethically dubious people in real life or, or you know, or, or how you respond in situations, you know, where people are maybe not showing their best selves you know does that breed empathy in you does that i like you know? to think so i um i think so just a little more more often i'm reminded that you don't know the full story yeah you just don't know and yeah. i mean i think that's that's an exciting way into any character is, is empathy whether it's a character you think you you off the surface like or dislike that's an interest that's always like an interesting way in, I find. Yeah. What is a role that you haven't played yet, but that you yearn to play? Or type of role? Yeah. Um, what's coming up in Riverdale would be one. Okay, yeah. We, we didn't even touch on that yeah. yet. But, so we're recording this in mid-August, and at the end of August, in early September, uh, which is still um, a ways 
I think this is this episode is airing in mid September. You know, so this is in the past uh, for listeners, but it's in the future for us. So we're in an interesting period of time. Um, but what 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 are you able to tell us about? Well, I'll tell you what one of the directors told me, who called me up in advance, and uh, like a, I don't know five days before filming, and she said to me, um, you know, I, I've seen your I've seen your audition tape and you did the table read and I love it. Now what I want to do when you come in, I want you to just bring as many weird and fucked up choices you can think of. Give me a new thing every single take and we'll just kind of play and have fun. So he's just like, he's kind of off the charts. He's crazy. Yeah. And that's uh, great. I would expect nothing less from Riverdale. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, (laughs) it's, uh, and, and he's like, be- because he's outside of the group of Riverdale, the there's kind of more freedom to be even crazier than the normal framework of an already crazy show. Amazing. So that was really exciting just to, I don't know, do things I didn't really, I mean, I didn't even do it in my audition. I didn't even think of it that way. I was just giving so much freedom by the director and... Want to shout out the director? Yeah, Mitch and Amick, who plays... Um, <gasps> no way! Betty's mom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm an old head, so for me, much than Amic, you know, is uh, Shelley on Twin Peaks. Yeah, of course. Yeah, where she was. And also, I mean, yeah, you'll see that. But also, I love that she's directing. Directing that episode and this one particular scene I had with her, I I don't know how someone can direct that and and do that acting as Amazing. well. It's just incredible. Yeah, and yeah. she's not the only uh, actor from the show who's now sliding into the director's chair. I know Natalie Bolt as well has. Oh, uh, that's right. You yeah, know, has been directing as well. Love that show. So that yeah, that's one. But like anything that I haven't done before, and and. <laughs> I well, but can I just go back to that though? What I love is that you got that directing advice from somebody like Amanda, you know, and and like well, I mean specifically as much and who is an actor, you know, as well as and who is now moving into the director's chair as well, you know, that really speaks to what actors can bring to the director's chair. Is that something that you would like to do at some point? Direct? The, yeah. Yeah, it's like I I I've definitely flirted with the idea. I'm very I'm very conscious of I really want to connect to the project mm. for whatever reason. Yeah. To I I feel like, and I would not want to start by directing something I'm acting in. That's for sure. Yeah. But I I like I love working with other actors and you know helping friends with their self tapes and throwing ideas at them, which is sort of a micro version of directing. But yeah, there's this whole thing around it then too about ideas for the camera and the lighting and that whole setup. That's like, it's a. Uh, I like going into something feeling like I have some knowledge, and right now I feel like I couldn't direct film or TV without more knowledge on the technical side of things. But yeah, yeah. at some someday maybe, yeah. Someday maybe. So, not quite a dream. Uh, not quite an ambition. Somewhere maybe in be in between. Yeah, it's it's been kind of percolating, but it but yeah. for now I'm like I'm really happy with with just acting. I love that you put just in um in air quotes <laughs> yeah. as well because there's nothing just about that. Well then let's let us end with um with with that time travel question. Uh and I'm going to I'm going to take us back to 
I'm not letting you plot the course for this mm-hmm. time in the in the Wayback Machine. I'm gonna take I wanna take you back to when you first arrived in Vancouver. And um, let's actually do it. I feel like I'm trying to find the specific day. Uh, it's the day of that acting class, the one where you okay. had that aha, that aha moment. You can go back in time and give yourself some advice in that moment that might make the next the next few years you know a little bit smoother, you know, or spare yourself some heartbreak or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. You know, what would you say? Or or would you not say anything at all? I mean, I'll try and come up with an answer, but yes, I think I would say nothing yeah. because I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And yeah. it's not everything along the way has been enjoyable, but I really enjoy what I'm doing and I enjoy how I'm doing it and I feel empowered in how I'm doing it. Yeah. Um. That's an answer. Yeah. I mean, That's I think answer. for me, the, the, the kind of big discovery in finding that empowerment and joy has also been, which I guess I could plant back then, is that this idea of like, I've really, the last couple of years, worked a lot on, on mindset as an almost like a, a side of the actual craft. On mindset. T- tell, tell us more about what Well, you mean. things like, for the longest time, I would you know you audition for things and it's easy to there's so many like oh you get pinned for that and shortlisted for that and you almost get this big part which will elevate your career and then you don't get it and it can be devastating and for me it was things like practicing gratitude mm. for the longest time i thought either i'm grateful or i'm not grateful and then i learned i can practice it just like i can practice other skills so when you talk about practicing is it really because what I've had to do, especially dealing with some of the, the traumas that I've experienced in the last few years, uh, and also my various mental health struggles, is that I part of, for me, practicing gratitude means there are some mornings where I have to lie in bed, and in order to will myself to get up, I will have to say things like, I'm grateful to have woken up today. Mm. I am grateful to have a place to live. I am grateful for my cats. I'm grateful that Paul is healthy. I'm great. Like, you know, and then go through. Yeah. So the practicing is literally just like in my mind, you know, saying all that stuff like so is that yeah, that's to, very similar, yeah. and, and it's and I'll do it whether I'm feeling great or not great. Yeah, I just try to find the the honesty of the gratitude, and again, it can be little. It could be yeah, I booked the greatest role ever, which is obviously easy to be grateful for, but it can also be the ah, that coffee this morning saved me. Like, yeah, you know, um, and I just find like that practice for me expands the moments where I'm not thinking about it, but I'm grateful for little things like going for a walk and yeah. <laughs> not allowed to have cats in our building. There's a cat that I can pet that's on the street. <laughs> oh, hey, if you want to go pet some cats, you can come and hang out with Wade Wilson and Vanessa. Oh, yeah. Okay? Tol- it's totally fine. Like, oh. they're, they're very <laughs> snuggly. Like, I, I don't want you to be deprived of cats. Uh, oh, that's very nice. Of yeah. cats at all. My cats are, are here for you. They're very dog-like in the way that they like to, uh, oh, that's that they like to snuggle. Yeah. Yeah. What about other actors? Um, do you, like, have you... F- have you forged, you know, relationships, either mentorship relationships or friendships, you know, with actors in the community? And if so, like, what ways do you do you help each other? Oh, definitely. I I think that's, I mean, that for me anyway, that's crucial. It's yeah. it's 
because it can be again that's another thing that can be so lonely and then one thing now especially now that everything we audition for almost everything is a self-tape yeah we can help each other out and and help each other tape and support each other and there's that extra win when someone has a good experience or gets a job and and i don't know just feel like i have i have skin in their game as well which is great yeah because in the end like we are we are a small community like we are yeah you know i mean yeah there's if this is a you know a billion dollar industry or whatever but like our vancouver film and television community is small and then the kind of like the the troop of actors you know it's it is small and yet you can also feel very islanded if you are if one if you feel like you're in competition with everybody you know yeah you know, yeah i mean and, and that's like part of that mindset thing too of just like forget about it. and especially now that sometimes I help friends and we realize we've been taping for the same thing and then even if we have like very similar kind of values and takes on things it's not we're not really in, co in competition because if they want him it's whatever I did was not right for it anyway yeah. and you weren't yeah you weren't the right fit for the project and it's great too and like you talk about it being a, it is a small community here but it's also I think a lot of us need reminders. I did. My agent told me, uh, chatting with him a while back, he said, like, yeah, it's a small group, but it's this is a world-class group. Like, there's a... Preach, Thomas. Yes. We, like, I mean... We are stars. You are stars here. And yet, I mean, this is... Okay, you, you've... you've you've got... I'm going to be <laughs> talking to go, go in on my soapbox and haul it out and <laughs> step onto it. I really... what. One of the things that I want to do here is help to build the star system. In Canada, yes, but also, more importantly, specifically in Vancouver. But that is not going to happen unless people like yourself and all of your colleagues internalize that idea that you are world-class stars, that you are artists that are deserving of adulation and awards and attention and, and just all, all of that good stuff, you know, that is, that is, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I just I throw away no, my No, no, I, I mean, it's true. And I know you talk about it on the podcast as well. And it's, and I, I'm repeating like half your guests by saying it's also like you learn that all these people, some of them I know, some of them I don't, but we, we think so many of the same things and we have these same. Yeah challenges and and uh yeah imagine what could happen if if we were all on the same page all the time you know and we all started, yeah you know if we all like we're putting it out into the universe we are stars we are world class you know you you come to hollywood north and you are coming to a hollywood you know that yeah. is deserving and that's worthy i mean imagine what we could what we could manifest you know um, yeah, clearly I can talk about this for hours and hours, and I really feel like we could talk for hours and hours. So I'm going to ask you, the uh, the former investigative journalist <laughs> and lover of of stories, did we get your story today? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, good. I feel yeah. I, mean, I was I, nervous I to interview I you. I got to tell you, I was nervous. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, because I know your work, but I don't really know you yet. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know how the conversation would go. I'm very happy. <laughs> it went really well. Um, but two, because you have a background in 
in asking questions, you know, and in, in you know, interviewing and stuff. Right. I'm always nervous to be like, oh, I'm interviewing somebody who knows how to interview. What's that going to be yeah, like? Yeah, yeah, no, but like I told you, I'm a fan of your work, so. <laughs> I'm a fan yeah. of yours, Mutual Admiration Society. <laughs> you will come back and you will tell us all about everything you're working on. And um, yeah, we're all just excited to watch your star shine. Thank you so much. All right, Thomas Nicholson, where can our fans find you, follow you, celebrate you, keep up to date on what you're working on, on the social meds? Oh, yes. I believe I am Nicholson, as in my last name, DK, as in Denmark. Oh, my God. I'm such an idiot. That's what the DK stands for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I do want to lis- listeners to know when Thomas sat down, I'm like, so um, how do I pronounce your last name? Because I thought... <laughs> I thought that it was going to be have, um, as he said, oh, you thought it was going to have some kind of weird Danish pronunciation. I'm like, I had some yes. interesting pronunciations <laughs> of my name back in Denmark. Oh. Yeah, yeah. How would they pronounce your name? Well, there, I had this I had this one football coach when I was a kid who flipped between Nicholson. Nicholson. And Niklasson. Niklasson. Yeah. Okay, well. Trying to trying to make it like sound Scandinavian, but Thomas Nicholson. <laughs> I made it I made it sound South Asian. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. Thank you, sir. Thank and you. Thank you to our listeners. Please like, subscribe, leave us a review if you're so inclined. They help us find even more listeners and we can keep the conversation going. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at yvrscreenscene. The YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger. I was going to ask you to make that sound Scandinavian, but (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to do that. Okay, and it is edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Furminger Devlet, oh, poor not Furminger Dane, for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! In the current COVID-19 environment, UBCP ACTRA, the BC Performers Union in the film and TV industry, has been working closely with industry partners, formulating sensible and practical guidelines for all cast and crew to ensure working on set is manageable and safe for everyone. UBCP ACTRA has created a dedicated COVID-19 webpage at www.ubcpactra.ca where members can find mental health resources, financial assistance information, and back-to-work strategies and updates about the current status of film production in the province of British Columbia. UBCP ACTRA knows this has been an extraordinarily difficult time for many people, and we look forward to better days ahead. We will get through this together. Please visit www.ubcpactra.ca. A message from UBCP ACTRA.